0: All right, well, good morning. Again, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We are making our way through Paul's letter. Not quite halfway, uh, but we're getting there. This past Friday, as you're turning there, uh, this past Friday, we celebrated Jane's third birthday. Little Jane Jane turned three years old. And if you asked her what she wanted for her birthday, she was very clear. She wanted uh, Anna boots, an Elsa dress, and Anna shoes. And this is Daisy and Jane in their new outfits. Now, they love the movie Frozen. They watch it way too much, and I'm ashamed at how much they have memorized in their little minds. Like, they can quote the movie as it goes. They'll walk around the house singing and dancing the song. But they've also made up a game uh, with Frozen, and they call it Hans. You have... Elsa and Anna and Kristoff, who are the the heroes of the show. And then you have Hans, who is the villain. Now, I am portraying Hans in the household. It's probably the best character study I've done. Like, the best role of my life uh, is this Hans character that I play. And what happens when we play Hans is that they don't just, you know, play Hans and fight the bad guy. They dress up. They get into character They start doing all the frozen moves, they recite the lines, they get really into it. Their identity shifts under who they want to be in these characters. Now as we get to this portion of 1 Corinthians, this is exactly where Paul is tracking for us. There's a lot that he is addressing to the church. That they have sexual immorality in the church, there's divisions in the church, There's this issue of sacrificing food to idols. They're not participating in the Lord's Supper correctly. In fact, if you looked at the church at Corinth, you would say, everything's going wrong. I don't even know if they would make it into the Southern Baptist Convention without us disfellowshipping them. I mean, they are doing everything off the wall. But Paul continually addresses them throughout this letter as who they are in Christ Jesus. He opens up the letter by calling them saints. He tells them that they have the mind of Christ, that they are the temple of God where his spirit dwells, and this is powerful imagery to an unbelievable reality in Christ Jesus. It's powerful imagery to an unbelievable reality in Christ Jesus. And the problem for this church and a problem that we may have is that we often don't live in this new reality We tend to identify ourselves by who we are or what we've done, the mistakes that we've made, and we let this be the forefront of our identity instead of who we are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you've spent any time in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 7 1 Corinthians 5 going forward, there's a lot uh, that can draw our attention. It's kind of like a dog chasing a car. We'll see one verse and it'll just make us go for that. There's a lot of things in here that could be distracting for us, but Paul has a very clear emphasis in this passage. He starts off uh, in verse nine, if you have it, in your Bibles. He says this, and this is where our, our minds will want to gravitate towards. He'll say, "Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And when we read that, it should make our stomachs kind of go into our chest. Because we should be able, if we're being honest with ourselves, we should be able to find somewhere in here where we might fit. Where we may have slandered someone Maybe we have taken advantage of a good deal. Maybe, like Jesus says, if you have lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. We would find maybe ourselves in here. But listen to what Paul says in verse 11. He says, and that is who some of you were. That's who you were. But now you are washed, you are sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Who is Paul addressing? He's addressing a people who are in the midst of all of this, in the midst of sexual immorality. We'll see in the midst of defrauding one another with lawsuits. And Paul even pivots back to say, this is who you once were. Recognize your identity in Christ Jesus and what that calls us to. So there's a lot in this passage. Paul's going to say something crazy to think about, really, that we're one day going to judge the angels. I mean, that's a wild thought, is it not? He's going to say something about not suing brothers, not taking them to court, and you know how are we supposed to live this out in our lives? But there's a few dangers in this passage today that I want us to see before we jump into the passage. The first danger is that we can see it only as a list of vices. Only as a list of vices. I'm sure that we may have heard sermons that pull from 1 Corinthians 6 and the immorality that Paul is speaking against, and this is a good passage to... Preach against the culture and what we see, but if we only see this, if this is the only place that we land, we've missed the point entirely. Paul is not simply calling them to just simply do better or to rid themselves of their vices, but to engage them as who they are in Christ Jesus washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord. This is not a passage only to see vices. Danger number two, this is not a passage only to see morals. We could take this passage and say, well, we just won't sue one another. We won't go to court. We won't practice the various sins that Paul lists, and then that will make me feel better. But at the end of this passage, Paul deepens this for the Christian life. Listen to how he ends. He says in verse 20, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Honor God with your body. Paul elevates the role of the Christian here, not in a thing, uh, just a list of things that we don't do, but in everything of who we are to honor God with our body. Now, before we begin, I just want to point out the three things that we're going to see this morning. Uh, we're going to see in this passage that Paul is upset that they're not acting as a community, and we could probably put we'll put one and two together that they're not acting as a community and they're practicing injustice. And then Paul wants us to see the transformed identity of the baptized. I'm going to read for us in 1 Corinthians 6 to get our mind wrapped around the passage, and then we will dive in together this morning. Chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it'll be on on the screen if you don't have it in front of you. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment? Instead of before the Lord's people, or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you to uh, to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those way, whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this is in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said that two will become flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. In the first part of Corinthians 6, we see Paul addressing some people in the church Who are pursuing legal action against one another. And this might seem like a really hard turn from last week in chapter five, where Paul is addressing people uh, within sexual immorality. So the question is why is Paul so disturbed by this report? Why is the lawsuit such a big deal in the church? And why is this directly following sexual immorality? I believe it's this, because Paul is upset with the Corinthians because they are failing to act as a community. They are failing to take responsibility for one another. And in that case, Paul's not really changed subjects here from chapter five to chapter six. That there are people in the church that are elevating themselves and their freedoms in Christ to abuse and misuse their freedoms in Christ. Just as they failed to discipline the incestuous man, so they're failing to take responsibility for taking their own disputes. And then furthermore for Paul, they're taking these disputes in front of unbelievers. And for Paul, this is just so out of bounds because God has given his people, his spirit, and his wisdom to judge and do rightly. So as they take their trivial lawsuits and bring them before a judge... They not only dishonor the name of Christ, they misrepresent the name of Christ. Now, research on the court systems of the Roman Empire shows us that it's not just a lawsuit, but this is also potential for injustice here. We see uh, the strong systematic bias in favor towards higher status people. History has shown us that the overwhelming majority of civil cases that were brought were brought by wealthy and powerful against people of lesser status and means. The judges themselves were a part of this higher class and would ordinarily give press preference to the testimony of their social peers. Second, we saw see that the people of higher standing had the funds to hire professionals to argue their cases and, if necessary, bribe the judges. This isn't too far off of what we see in our maybe... Uh, political climate now, that people that have the money can hire the best lawyers and make the best defense. But what was happening here is that within the church, there were two different classes. And we'll see this in 1 Corinthians 11, that there were those who were wealthier among the people, and they were able to get to their Sunday gathering earlier. And by the time the people who had to work Uh, who were coming in, who were much poor, got to the gathering. Everyone that was wealthy had already eaten all the food, they were drunk on the wine, and they were misusing their gifts of higher status to elevate themselves above people of lower status. And Paul sees this correlation happening again in the Corinthian church, that there are those within the church that are suing those potentially of lesser means to defraud them. So it is potential that the wealthier church members are using this to elevate themselves even more. And Paul says, this is to your shame, because you're taking these cases to unrighteous men who will listen to your case with a bribe. Has the Lord not given us his church that will listen to these things and do what is right by all people? And then Paul elevates this level by reframing their present situation in light of eternity. Paul shifts the focus really sharply to say, Do you not know that you will judge the angels? That you will rule in the new heavens, in the new earth? And Paul is drawing off of imagery in Daniel 7, Matthew 19, Luke 22, Revelations 3, Revelation 3, but Paul is reframing this to elevate our identity in Christ and how we see our responsibility to Jesus and his church. When I was in the second grade, uh, we had a test uh, that was coming up. I don't know if it was standardized testing or what. I don't remember that that much of it. But Miss Bennett, our second grade teacher, she could sense that everyone in the class was a little nervous. So before we took the test, she had everybody stand up, And when she had everybody stand up, she told everybody to shake the willies out of them. Well, you know what I did? I just stood there because I am a willie. He ain't shaking that out of me. But part of the reason I was so proud of my identity as a willie is because it had been instilled in me by my father from a very young age and about how willie men would act Willie men would respect one another, we'd hold the door open for our grandmother, we would say, yes ma'am, and yes sir, no ma'am, no sir, you know, just the, the things that we all teach our children as they're growing up. But for me, this had a deeply profound impact in my life because it was identified, connected to who I was as a Willie. Stand up, walk tall. Look people in the eye, speak confidently. These were all things that my dad taught me. So when I get to my second grade test and my teacher says, shake the willies out of you, I'm thinking, not a chance. I'll take this test, willies or not. You know, I'm going for it. In the same way, in a similar way, not exactly the same way, Paul is raising our identity to see who we are in Christ Jesus. And this should make us reframe and rethink how we deal with everyday matters of the church, everyday matters of our lives. In a similar way, Paul is trying to get us to see our disputes with one another in light of eternity. And I'd just encourage you, you know, just to practice this. As things come up in your life, as things that bring about stress or anxiety, Uh, things that bring about worry. We all have these things that happen every day in our life. And I just encourage you to ask this question. Will I be this concerned about it 10,000 years from now in eternity? Will this cause me just as much anxious feeling or anxiety or nervousness when I'm with Christ Jesus? And I'd imagine that the answer is absolutely not absolutely not. And so for Paul, his reasoning then to say is, why then not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Lose the money, lose the possession instead of going against your brother in court. This has no weight in light of eternity. And this is hard. This is hard for us to hear because we are autonomous people who pride ourselves in the things that we do within our lives and the things that we accrue in our very present reality. This is difficult. And I have a caveat here for us that I'll get to because I don't believe that this means that all lawsuits are off the table. Uh, but we'll, we'll get there. But what Paul is saying to the church is that not only is this wronging your brother, this is representing the wrong message of Christ in his church. And this is a very present reality in our world today. This isn't to speak ill of other churches, but just to illustrate how this matter blows up. Whenever a church is involved in litigation, whenever a church sues another church, or whenever a church um, sues another small business, say, and that is put on social media, who do you think social media sides with? I mean, it's against the church. They see the church as being the ones that are majoritarily in the wrong in how they are handling this. Whenever a church does this or has to go to suit, it speaks ill of who the church is. And Paul's main argument here against lawsuits among believers is that there are no winners. You may be wronged, you may have a case, but taking your brother to court, if I were to go and take Jared to court, there would be no winners among us. It would divide the elders, it would divide the church. No one would win, the entire church would lose. Fighting it out in the court of law, the Corinthians become perpetrators of wrongdoing. Now to that caveat I was speaking against. Does this mean that we don't ever take any legal action ever? That's a tough question. I would lean to no. I mean, we live in a world where the court, where lawyers and judges are often required to get things done and that have major implications. I mean, take, for instance, uh, a medical malpractice lawsuit or a worker's comp or a list of other things that will require a judge to determine to get, say, a settlement from an insurance company. Our system is built in these ways. But what this does mean that I believe is that within the church, we must weigh the cost. What are my actions communicating that I believe about Jesus? So, do you go to court? Here's my answer, I don't know. But here's the other thing that I love to do. I love to pass it off on somebody else. We have within our midst, an attorney who loves Jesus, who serves him faithfully, and who walks in his ways. So for us as a church, whatever the issue might be, we take these things to professionals who love Jesus and we ask them their advice. We go to them, we seek the wisdom and counsel of someone like Jared to know if this is something that we should do. But I think drilled down deeper for us, this passage calls on us as a community of believers to seek and settle our disputes among believers. Here's how this might play out It doesn't necessarily elevate to the level of lawsuit. When husbands and wives who are going through difficulty in their marriage and they seek counsel on their marriage from people who are outside of the church, who don't seek true wisdom, who don't love Jesus, who don't follow his word, do you think you're going to get godly counsel from those people? for those who are working through issues of um, your marriage or, or whatever it is, we can tend to go towards people who sympathize with us. Yeah, man, you're right. That is a tough situation. I wouldn't listen to her either. You go and do your own thing. You'll be right in that. Do what makes you happy is the motto of the American life. But for us as a church, What we want to do is to seek the counsel from those who love Christ Jesus and will give us hard truth in love, godly wisdom and truth, to fight for marriages, to seek reconciliation and repentance. It might switch to finding allegiance, whether it's political or business, and we elevate that higher than our calling to Christ, where the church comes in and Paul comes in and says that our fundamental identity is in Christ. And this is where I think Paul is really wanting us to see. It's not just morals or vices that can trip us up, but who we are as a church, our transformed identity of the baptized. Now going back to our first illustration of Daisy and Jane, who was it that you wanted to be when you grew up? When you were a child and you played make-believe with your friends or your sisters or your brothers, who was it that you wanted to be? For me, it was a motorcycle cop. I just thought they were awesome and I'd write tickets and go arrest people. But for you, where did your imagination bring you? Life has a way of taking everything that we do, And instead of identifying with who we want to be, we now identify ourselves of uh, what we've done or what we are doing. Successes, failures, whether we're young or old, married or single, have kids or no kids, American, middle class, registered voter, a couple of different jobs, hobbies, probably a few quirks. And identifying in these ways can have various things. One that can make us really proud, like the Corinthians where we elevate our status by what we've done and who we are and how we know what to do. We become puffed up when we identify in that way. Or we identify in the ways that can make us feel a lot of shame. We look at Uh, verses 9 and verse 10, where it says, wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, men who have sex with men, the thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And when we read that, all we hear is that that is who my identity is. And we feel so much shame in what we've done. But Paul comes along to say that that is who you once were. So I encourage you in, in this way to hold in tandem who you once were and who you are now. I used to see others as a means to an end, to get out of them what I want, but now I see others made in God's image. I used to see church as an obligation, but now I see church as the gathering of God's people. I used to see myself as only the sins that I committed in my inability to break the cycle, but now I see myself as washed, sanctified, justified in Christ Jesus. And when we see our transformed identity in that, we become like little girls in uh, Daisy and Jane or Russell who pick up the swords or put on the dresses or the night costume to see our transformed identity in who we really are. Washed, sanctified, and justified. Now, a favorite Bible stu- story for many of us, is in John 11 with the raising of Lazarus. And when we read it, we can see it from a lot of different ways. Different things in the story can come across differently in various readings. And I have one that I've come across recently that's really stuck with me. So consider Lazarus. He's dead. He's been dead for four days now. And the family is still in really deep mourning, We don't really know all the circumstances of Lazarus' death, except that he was sick and that Jesus wasn't there. So they send word to Jesus that he is sick, and Jesus sends word back to the sisters that uh, this will not end in death. And then as we continue reading the story, we see that Jesus delays going to Bethany. Now, can you imagine this for a moment? If you were the family, if you were Lazarus, you're dying, you're sick, or the sisters, You know the solution. Call Jesus. He was just here not long ago. He loves us. He will help us. So they send word for Jesus, and then they get word back from Jesus that he's not coming yet. But not worry. Everything will be fine. But everything's not fine. Lazarus is dying. And so when Jesus does come a few days later, Lazarus has been dead now for four days, and the very first thing that Martha says to Jesus, do you remember what she says? if you would have been here, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And I can feel all of the sorrow and the grief, but I can also sense and hear the anger creeping out in her voice. And then, you know what? Jesus responds with her. He says, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on that day. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And Martha says, yes, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come to take away the sins of the world. Then they go through a period of weeping together, uh, and then Jesus tells them to roll away the stone. Now, think about everything that's just happened. Jesus has said the sickness will not end in death, that Lazarus will rise again, that Jesus is a resurrection. Mary has just made the confession that she believes that he is the Son of God, the Messiah. And she believes, she says this, God will give you anything you ask. So when Jesus says, roll away the stone, what do you think Martha's response would be? Absolutely, roll it away. But you know what she says? Don't, it stinks, it stinks. He's been in there for four days. Grief has a way of doing this to us. Grief and despair, where we can hold two things at once in our hands, a belief and an affirmation in the Son of God, but then despair in the reality of our circumstances that we do not see how it works out in the present. She's just confessed that God will give Jesus anything that he asks, but then she stops him from rolling away the stone because he stinks. He stinks. You see, in our lives, we can see our sin and our shame. and We can hear the message of Jesus and that he holds us, he's washed us, he's sanctified us, he justifies us. But then we can look at our own lives and we can say, I stink. I really stink. Don't roll away the stone. Don't look at me. I don't want to go to church. I don't want anybody to notice who I am and what I'm doing. But Paul is telling us to see your new identity in the risen Messiah Christ Jesus. So here's my invitation to you today. Whatever pride or sin or shame that you have in your life, that you can hold it in your hand and you can remember, you can hand it to Jesus that he has washed you, he's sanctified you, and he's justified you. How? Because he's good and he has the authority to do so. When we think about the gospel when we think about when Jesus went to the cross we might think that people were so bad and so mean and God was so angry with them that he could not forgive them unless somebody big enough took the rap for the whole lot but this is not the gospel the gospel is that love not anger brought Jesus to the cross Love, not anger, has motivated him to you. You can feel sin and shame. You can even have anger towards it. But at the heart of God is the desire to give and forgive. For those who have been baptized in Christ Jesus, Paul says, you are now in him. And what you were, that's who you once were. But now you are washed, sanctified, and justified in him. You are held firmly in his love. What did we read together this morning? Nothing can separate us from the love of those who are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 4.21, I want to end with this passage here for us moving forward. Paul says this, when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. If you come to church week in and week out, it's most likely that you'll start to hear a rhythm of us repeating the same things. That Jesus loves you, that he's died for you, and in him you've been washed, sanctified, and justified. Do you know why we repeat it so often? Because we, re- we need reminding of it. We're quick to forget. We're quick to look at our own despair, our own sin, our own shame, instead of looking at our Savior. So the application for us this morning is that you, if you are in Christ Jesus, you've been washed, sanctified, and justified. If you're not in Christ Jesus, who we're saying who you once were, that's who you still are. The invitation is to come to him to be washed, sanctified, and justified. Application number two. If you're a Switchfoot fan, this is for you. Uh, there's a new way to be human. There's a new way for us to live in this identity in Christ Jesus. Jesus that we don't uh, go at each other to get something out of one another, but we would rather be wronged. We would rather be wrong than to be right. We will do anything to preserve the unity of the body because of what Christ has done.